to Psalm 115. We will continue our Bible study here as we continue studying through the Psalms. Start with our summary statement for this Psalm, and this is a little longer uh, statement, so um, I will try to go through it somewhat slowly and go over it again. So Psalm 115 praises Yahweh for his covenant mercy and faithfulness that blesses and delivers all those who trust in him that they may praise him forevermore. Okay, I'll go over that again. Psalm 115 praises Yahweh for his covenant mercy and faithfulness that blesses and delivers all those who trust in him that they may praise him forevermore. Okay, the simple outline for this psalm will be in two parts, about half, um, verses 1 to 8, the idols of the nations, verses 9 to 18, the God of the heavens. I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 8, the idols of the nations. Verses 9 to 18, the God of the heavens. Okay, so we'll go to our observations for this psalm. So Psalm 115 is what we call an anonymous psalm. There's no superscription there. Um, there's no author attribution. Um, there is no, and again, there's not really any strong or compelling evidence for any particular author. There is no musical direction that is given in this particular psalm. There's no occasion that is given um, ultimately, we do see that it has a um, what we might call slight um, future orientation. It encourages praise in light of future blessings, but there's no occasion for the writing of the psalm that's given anywhere. To categorize this psalm, Psalm 115, it is a praise psalm. It is particularly a hallelujah psalm. So this um, at the end of, of the psalm, at the end of verse 18, it ends with praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, so it is one of the hallelujah psalms. 
Um, does have some minor elements. Um, I'd say that there's a, some minor creation elements, some references to God as the creator. Um, I would also give it, um, put it with some minor wisdom elements because there's just a, a strong contrasting here between um, the idol worshipers and those who trust in the Lord and uh, the fear of the Lord and, and the difference of their outcomes. And there's also a, a very minor predictive element, and that is mainly toward the end as it turns. And so um, not as strong as some of the more recent psalms that we have looked at, um, but certainly is looking forward to um, that future time of, of blessing and deliverance, particularly for Israel, uh, but that won't affect only them. So Psalm 115 is the fifth of the Hallelujah Psalms. So in book five of the Psalms, we have this first Hallelujah Psalm group, Psalms 111 to 117. So this is the fifth of that group. This is also the third of the smaller group of Psalms that are here called the Hallel or the Egyptian Hallel. And that is verse Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. Now, the Hallel is the Psalms that were sung in connection, in observance with the Passover, and particularly this was in, in uh, practice by the time of Christ and, and the New Testament. Um, they would sing these psalms. So Psalms 113 and 114 would be sang before the meal. Psalms 115 to Psalms 118 would be, be sang after the meal. Uh, and so this begins the part of the Hallel that was sung after the Passover meal. And when you think about the Passover, the Passover was an observance that was both a remembrance and a future hope. So the Passover was being observed in anticipation of the coming of the Lamb of God into the world. And of course, you remember how uh, John the Baptist stood and proclaimed um, the Lamb of God, uh, Jesus Christ, who had come. So the Passover was a remembrance and a future hope, and this fits very well with this particular psalm and, and really with all these psalms of the Hallel as we've been seeing. Now remember, so Psalm 111 begins the Hallelujah Psalms. So right after Psalm 110, Psalm 110 uh, is, is um, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is uh, a very clear and strong messianic psalm that is a psalm that is prophesying of Jesus Christ. Remember how that Psalm 110 envisioned the second coming. It's, it's when... David's Lord, Jesus Christ, comes from the right hand of the Father in heaven to the earth to reign among and over the nations of the earth from Zion or Jerusalem. That's Psalm 110. That's what Psalm 110 envisions. So Psalm 111 starts this almost like a hallelujah chorus um, that runs through these psalms that is just an unfolding praise. Uh, and, and each psalm has sort of focused on a little bit different aspect, but has had some thematic elements that have run through it. So after envisioning that second coming, we come to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 gives assurance and encouragement to Israel in exile of the promises for the future. So you can think about Psalm 115 and think about and, and 
and Israel reading this psalm when the world around them doesn't look like the conditions that are described in Psalm 110. All right, and that's sort of where this psalm fits in this unfolding praise. This psalm is also connected thematically with the Hallelujah Psalms. There's, there's this envisioning of a future restoration of Israel resulting in everlasting praise. Um, this psalm also has some very strong external connections. So when you look at verses 4 to 8 in this psalm, you have this denouncing of the idols and it is very similar to sections that we see in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 19 to 31, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 to 20, and Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. These, these are also um, denunciations of the idols of the nations. And ultimately, they, they, in those prophetic passages, they also bring judgment um, on Israel for following after them, but, but there is a strong connection, um, similarity between those sections and the section here. All right, so for the poetic features of Psalm 115, um, there is a use of imagery, but it's a little bit different. It's, it's, not, it's not what we typically think of in terms of poetic imagery, um, where poetic imagery is, is used in somewhat of a figurative way. This is more what I would describe as descriptive imagery. So we get a lengthy description of idols as having um, eyes and ears and noses and hands and feet and, and things like that, which, again, it's not really a figurative or symbolic type of, of imagery, but just um, just a descriptive imagery that does paint um, a pretty vivid picture. Um, the psalm also does use some repetition um, throughout the structure of the psalm primarily um, works on contrasts. So in, as you work through this psalm, you're going to have a contrast between Israel and those who fear God and the nations um, who worship idols. And then you're also going to have a contrast between Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, and the idols of the nations. All right, so we can work our way through this psalm now. Um, there are 18 verses, and I'll go ahead and read these. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is every one that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Ye are blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. 
the heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. It's the hallelujah that ends the psalm. So this psalm opens up, verses 1 to 3, um, which is a call for all glory to go or to be to God. Now, the us, and you'll notice the us and the we that goes throughout the psalm, the us is clearly Israel or the house of Israel, as is plain from the rest of the psalm. The word for glory here, it is the word kavod, which we have been tracking as we've been going through the psalms. Um, kavod is, is a word that um, it literally means, means weight. Literally, it means weight. Um, but when it is used to refer to a person or in a little bit more figurative application, it, it, it's like saying that they are a weighty person or, or there's, there's, there's a real weight to their presence. Um, so it's typically, as we've tracked it being used to the Psalms, but it's also true in, in the rest of the Old Testament, it's typically associated with reigning power and majesty. So a king is a weighty person, for instance. So a king that walks into a room has a weighty presence in that particular room. And so that's sort of the, the connection of the word, but in a little more figurative use. So the uh, reference here is for glory to be um, to God, glory to be to the Lord, to Yahweh, to, um, to his name. And the mention of name, along with these two words, mercy and truth, chesed and emet, these, these Hebrew terms which we've also been keeping track of in the Psalms that are used repeatedly, and particularly when they are used together, um, they set the tone for this Psalm. This Psalm is obviously going to be a strongly covenantal Psalm. Look at how that it starts. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name, and that, that name, when God's name is referred to, particularly as we've, we've looked at it in the Psalms, this is a, this is a reference to um, his, his person and being, his, his reputation, um, and, it, and it is his name on which his covenants rest. There's none greater. If, remember, if, if you and I make a covenant, or we, today, in today's language, we might refer to it as a contract. So if we enter into a contract, who is going to hold us accountable? Well, um, probably the county or the state or um, even the federal government of the U.S., if, if necessary, is, is going to hold us because they have greater authority than us. They are above us. They are over us. They're going to hold us accountable. If we default on our contract, then there's going to be whatever penalties that are ascribed. Well, there is none greater than God. So who can hold God accountable for his contract or for his covenant with um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and with Israel as a nation and with um, the, the living things on the earth through the Noahic covenant and so on? Who, who can hold God accountable for that? Well, there is none greater. And so we're told in the book of Hebrews that God swore by his own name. So when we see that reference to God's name, it is that... that um, um, oh, what is the, the word for security? It's, it's that that secures um, the covenant. Um, so, again, the, this, this uh, psalm is going to be strongly 
based on God's covenant promises. Uh, as we continue on there, the word for heathen that is used, that is goyim. Uh, in other words, it, it is the word for nations. It is referring to the nations. Um, and they say, where is thy God? Or uh, This is essentially uh, a taunt. They're, they're mocking Israel, particularly in their afflictions. So we can see references in places like Joel chapter 2 and verse 17 or uh, Micah chapter 7 and verse 10 where they ask this sort of question. Basically, when Israel is suffering afflictions, you know, they're, they're essentially mocking them and saying, oh, well, well where, is, where is your God? But they're also asking, where is your God in reference to the fact that Israel lacks an idol? There's no statue of God in Israel. In fact, one of the commandments of the law expressly and specifically forbade them from making any sort of image or likeness of God. And so the nations, they, all ha- they have all their idols. And they're saying, well, well, where's your God? We can show you our God. We, we've got him right here. We can show you our God. Where is your God? So um, we've seen this come up in the Psalm, Psalm 42 and verses 3 and 10, Psalm 79 and verse 10. There's no image of God that is worshipped in Israel. And oddly enough, oddly enough, the nation saying, where is your God, because they lack any sort of an idol or image representation of God, oddly enough, this made the God of Israel non-existent in the minds of the nations. Your God's not real. I mean, look, there, where, where's your idol? There's no, you're, you're not, you don't have any image of God. What does he look like? How can, we, how can we see him? And so, obviously, in the mind of the nations, that meant that their God was not real. Well, the answer comes then there, you see, in verse um, number three, but our God's in the heavens, and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. So the answer is, is that the God of Israel is in the heavens. The, he, as Paul said um, to the Athenians there in Acts chapter 17, he doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. He's the, our God is not made of wood or, or gold or silver or stone. He's in the heavens. In other words, he's above and over all. He does as he pleases or he does what pleases him. So... Um, we've seen this sort of a reference in Psalm 103 and verse 19. Uh, another place would be Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, the words of, of Nebuchadnezzar. So the emphasis here in this statement is on God's freedom of action. In other words, God's not, he's not compelled to act in any sort of a way. He does what pleases him. He does what he purposes to do. He does as he wills to do. But there's also, as we're getting ready to to step into this comparison with the idols, there's also a contrast being presented here. Because the idols are going to be presented, and you know what the idols do? Or what do they not do? They don't take any actions whatsoever. Because they're just dead pieces of material that have been formed into some sort of a shape. And this is a, a primary contrast between them and the living God. So as you get to verses 4 to 8 then, we have this reference to the idols, their silver and gold. Um, They're described with, with, again, very descriptive imagery. Um, They have mouths and eyes and ears and noses and hands and feet, but they don't do any actions. They don't speak. 
They don't see. They don't hear. They don't smell. They don't touch. They don't walk. They, they don't do anything. They're just inanimate pieces of material that have been formed. They're shaped, he says, by men's hands. So men have formed them into, into a form. They're just dead chunks of metal or could be wood or stone or whatever. The particular material is, is not really what's, what's of importance. They're made by men, and they're also as powerful as men can make them to be. In other words, all the power that, that these gods have is, is just all the power that men have um, put into them, meaning they have no power. And they have no life. They're dead. They're lifeless idols. And those that put their trust in idols will be like them. And you know what that means is they will also be dead. And that comes out um, toward the end. In other words, they're, they're going to suffer judgment. Verses 9 to 11 then now begins this exhortation to Israel to trust in the Lord. Um, trust here is the word for take refuge in. It's, it's, again, it's another one of those words we've been tracking through the Psalms, um, the, the take refuge, which is a term for um, covenantal relationship with God that first began to be used back in Psalm 4 and verse number 5. And then we get, again, all these covenantal references. God is their help and their shield. Now, the word for help is actually a, a more like helper, the one who helps. Um, we've seen it, Psalm 20 and verse 2, Psalm 33 and verse 20, Psalm 70 and verse 5. Shield is that that is a protection or a defense that began to be used back in Psalm 3 and verse 3, another common covenantal term. Israel, the house of Israel, and the house of Aaron, those who fear the Lord, refers particularly to the chosen nation of Israel, the we and the us um, of the psalm. They are the, they're being exhorted to trust in the Lord. In verses 12 to 15, God remembers his covenant. Now, the word for remember here, um, and again, when, when this sort of language is, is used, um, God remembering, it's not as, as if he forgot or that even he could forget, but it's a reference to the fact that he will not forget. His promises will, will not go. Um, you know, you and I as, as human beings... Um, I, if, if this hasn't happened to you, then, then that is great. Um, but you've probably made promises at times that you forgot about. You simply forgot to keep those promises. It wasn't that you had bad intentions or bad motives, but you just said you would do something and you, you just, for whatever reason, you just forgot and you just didn't do it. And again, I've had that experience. Maybe you haven't. And if you haven't, well, then that's, that's great, um, but many of us definitely have had that sort of experience. We've said we were going to do something, and through no malicious intent of our own, we just, we just forgot, and we didn't do it. Well, that's, God's not like that. And so when it says God remembers his covenant, it's not that he forgot it for a long time, then all of a sudden it came to mind, oh, I, you know, I better go, I better go gather Israel. Um, no, but the word for remember when it's used of God always refers to, to his covenant faithfulness, always. Uh, places like Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 15 to 16. Uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 21. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse number 60. So the word for blessed that is used here is also another covenantal 
um, term, uh, covenantal blessings, beginning back with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. I will bless you. I will make, make you great, make your name great. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 to 14. Um, through the covenant, God says, I will bless you. So we get this repeated blessing. God will, God will bless. God will help. God will protect. God will bless. God will remember the house of Israel to bless it because of his promises. And this is going to mean increase for the house of Israel, even down to their children, generational increase. And then we get the, um, there in, in verse 15, you're blessed to the Lord which made heaven and earth. And here's another contrast. God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, wasn't made, but rather he's the maker. He's the maker of heaven and earth. All of the idols have been made, and all of the idols have been made by men. But God has not been made. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the creator. He's the one true God. He is going to bless according to his promises. And in verses 16 to 18 is where we get praise forevermore. So as a result of God's creation work, the heavens and the earth are his. And he has given the earth to the, the children of, of men, or that's literally the sons of Adam. He has given the earth to, to, and he gave the earth to men to be inhabited, to be ruled over, to produce its good fruit, and, and to maintain this earth in order. And we get that in, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, um, relayed also in the Psalms, Psalms 8, and verses 6 to 8. Now, the dead that are referenced here, they don't praise the Lord, they go into silence. In other words, here's where we see them becoming like their idols. The idols don't speak. They have mouths, but they don't speak. The dead, we're told, they go into silence. They don't speak. Now, the point here is not, is not trying to um, give us a, a doctrine of the, of the afterlife. That's, that's not the point. The point of this expression here is that the dead, the, these are the wicked who face punishment. They're not blessed with the righteous to live on the earth and to praise God. So they go into silence. They become like the dead idols that they worship. But Israel and all those who fear him, all those who put their trust in Yahweh, they will dwell on the earth and they will praise him forevermore. And everlasting, um, everlasting praise for him. And then we get the concluding hallelujah. Praise the Lord or praise ye the Lord. All right, so we'll go to interpretation now. Psalm 115 obviously teaches the existence and the sovereignty of God. He acts, he takes action, he makes, he creates, and he also keeps his promises, he remembers. The idols, on the other hand, are dumb and they're lifeless. And they do nothing. In fact, idols, uh, as Paul talked about them in um, the New Testament, his, in his letter to First Corinthians letter, um, they're actually um, demonic. Uh, any sort of any sort of power that's behind them is a demonic power. But the encouragement that is given in this psalm is for Israel, even in the midst of calamity. 
God is working. God is working out his sovereign purpose. He's in the heavens. He does what he pleases to do. The idols can't hinder him or thwart him or oppose him. The nations can't stop him. So, in other words, as as Israel reads this psalm in exile, no matter what it looks like around them or no matter what it feels like around them, God is yet in control and is working out his purposes and he will keep all of his promises. So God doing what he pleases is here joined with all of these references to his covenant faithfulness. And this is one of the places where I think it's easy for there to be misunderstanding about the sovereignty of God. So this statement here that God's in the heavens, he does whatever he please, he, this is not just a general statement that's saying, well, God can just do whatever he wants to do. And that's the way a lot of times that sovereignty is understood and maybe even expressed. God, it's not a general statement that God can do whatever he wants to do, but rather that God only and always does what he is pleased to do or what he wants to do or, maybe better put, what he has willed to do. God only and always does what he has willed to do. He does not ever do what does not please him to do, what he has not willed to do. So again, it's not just a general statement. And, 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 and I hear those kind of things. Oh, well, God can do whatever he wants to do. Well, you can't put God in the box. God can do whatever he wants to do. God will only and always do what he is pleased to do. In other words, what he has willed to do. And if he has not willed to do it, he will not do it. It's not So sovereignty isn't really as much about God's ability as it seems like we want to make it about. It's not, it's not that much about God's ability. Yes, God's, God's ability um, is such that he's, that he's almighty. He has all power. So, there's, so he, he will do whatever he wants to do, and no one can stop him. No one can cause that not to happen. But particularly what we're told, though, about God doing what pleases him to do is that he will keep his covenant promises to Israel. He will keep his covenant promises to all those who trust in him, all those who take refuge in him. And his power is of such a nature that there's nothing that can prevent that. There's nothing that can prevent God from fulfilling all of his will. Well, the messianic hope of this psalm is seen particularly through the helper who comes to Israel. And again, that word for help really has the idea of the helper, the one who helps So it's the helper who comes to Israel. Well, these idols are given descriptions in very human terms. But these idols are dead. They cannot save the nations that trust in them or even those of Israel who uh, who apostatize and go after them. And the nations mock Israel because their God is not seen. And if you've ever wondered, or maybe you've never wondered, but God commanded that there were not to be any graven images that were made. So why is God so particular 
that no one make an image or likeness of him. Well, the reason why is because there is one image of God, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the image of God. So Hebrews chapter 1 Verses 1 to 3, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, uh, the, uh, and will for a time, according to Psalm 110, which the writer of Hebrews quotes. He is the express image or the exact image of God. So God has one image, and that image is Jesus Christ. We're not to make any others. We're not to follow or bow down or worship or serve any others. He has one image that he sent to earth in the flesh, in the form of man. So he took on human flesh, John 1 verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And even after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples, telling them in, in Luke's uh, account of, of the, uh, one of the appearances of him that he wasn't some sort of an immaterial spirit. He said, you, uh, an immaterial spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, you see me have. And here's what he said to Thomas, John chapter 20, verse 27. Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Jesus Christ is the image of God, but he's not a dumb and dead image that does nothing. He walks, he talks, he sees, he he touches, he handles, he takes action because he is the true and living God in the human flesh. He is not a dumb idol of the nation's. And furthermore, when you think about this psalm, think about how that Jesus embodied the praise of this psalm through seeking the praise and glory of his Father. This psalm begins with, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and thy true sake. John chapter 7, verse 18, he that, Jesus said, he that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Later praying in the garden after having sung this psalm, Jesus prayed in, psalm, in John 17, 4, Father, as he's speaking to his father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So undoubtedly we can see Jesus fulfilling 
um, this particular psalm. He is the helper to come to Israel and the one through whom these blessings will come. All right, let's go to application. have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 115 helps us understand what trusting in God means. What does it, what does it look like? It means not looking to anyone or anything else to do what only God can do. Uh, if you want to relate it to the book of James that we have been going through recently, it's not to be double-minded. It's to have no other loyalties, no other, no other commitments, not to look to anyone or anything other than God. Number two, understanding Psalm 115 helps us understand that living to glorify God satisfies us. So, living to glorify God does not mean living in quiet spiritual contemplation, but living out the purpose for which he created the heavens and the earth and human beings for that matter. He made the earth, we're told here, for the sons of Adam. To do what? To live on. To, to work in the earth. To bring forth the fruits of the earth. To enjoy the earth and the beautiful creation that he made and to rule over the earth, taking dominion and so on. So what does it look like to glorify or to live to glorify God? Well, it it means to live out the purpose for which he has created it, expressing thanks to him and, and glorifying his name. And ultimately, that is satisfying. And if we take it back to the contrast, living to serve dead idols, not only is it unsatisfying, but it only leads to death itself. And no life on the earth praising God forevermore. All right, that is Psalm 115. Any questions about anything we studied here tonight?